Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Are we in a new energy cold war? Is net zero destroying our energy capacity? To discuss, I'm joined by the renowned economist Diana Furchgott Roth from the Heritage Foundation, who has served in every Republican administration since Ronald Reagan. Why is 2024 going to be an energy election? Because the two parties have diametrically opposing views as to the role of energy and what should be done in the energy area. And there's going to be no bigger change if a Republican president is elected than in the energy area. There's going to be more drilling of oil and natural gas. There's going to be fewer rules on subsidies for renewables. And there's going to be fewer rules on the forced march to electric vehicles. All those are going to be rolled back. What would you say is the Democrats' alternative vision? The Democrats' vision is what they're putting into place now which is that by 2035, no petrol-powered cars are allowed to be sold. It has to be all electric vehicles sold in the States. And there's a move towards more wind and more solar, which increases people's electricity bills. And it doesn't help the climate, because China is building two coal-fired power plants a week. Even if America got rid of all fossil fuels, it would only make a difference of two-tenths of one degree centigrade by the year 2100. Are you concerned about deindustrialization? This has been a sort of movement on the left around the world. I'm concerned that if we just take manufacturing in Europe or the States and move it to China, we have even more emissions because China produces these kinds of things in a more dirty way. We don't help the climate and people lose their jobs. Do you feel that people understand the impact of so-called deindustrialization or um, decarbonization on everyday life, what that might look like for ordinary people? I think that people are very unhappy about their higher electric bills. They're very unhappy that the prices of petrol have gone up. They're unhappy that they have to sell their old cars because they live in an ultra-low emission zone. I'm not sure if they link it to decarbonization. Because if you ask most people whether they want to help the climate, of course they're going to say yes. People are very good-hearted. And I don't think that they link the higher costs they have to what politicians say is going to help the climate. But I'm not even sure that politicians want to help the climate or are doing this to help the climate. It's basically a fight between two industries, the green industry and the fossil fuel industry. Right now, the green industry has massive amounts of subsidies, massive advantages, and the fossil fuel industry is right now at a disadvantage from the media side. On the other hand, wind and solar are only producing 5% of the world's electricity, even though there have been uh, $6.7 trillion in subsidies over the past uh, uh, 10 years or so. As you say, there is this sort of green lobby, and they make the argument that, of course, climate change is happening, it's man-made, and there are going to be severe consequences if we don't prevent this from from happening. And therefore, we must instigate very radical policies, including net zero um, and decarbonisation, as you've seen in America and California and other states. So what do you say to this argument that actually we do need to take radical policies now and make those decisions in order to prevent this catastrophe that's coming down the line? 
Look, if we really wanted to reduce global emissions of carbon, we wouldn't be taking one set of manufacturing and moving it to another place in the world where it's made with even dirtier forms of energy. That does not reduce global emissions. If we want, if we want to take carbon seriously, we would have more natural gas and more nuclear power. And it's just very interesting that these environmentalists who say there's a problem with carbon emissions are against nuclear power, which is dense energy and it's emissions free. And France has produced about 50 or 60 percent of its electricity with nuclear power for about the past uh, 70 years without any problem at all. There are nuclear submarines. They don't have any problem at all either. Uh, there have been a few minor accidents, which is regrettable. Uh, but there are accidents in all forms of energy production. Just because you have a car accident, it doesn't mean you stop driving. But nuclear power and natural gas are the answer. And natural gas is why American carbon emissions have declined by about 1,000 million metric tons over the past 15 years, whereas China's have gone up by 5,000 million metric tons. Do you agree with the fundamental principle that climate change is going to be a catastrophe for humanity and we must make those decisions to prevent that from happening, in other words, by investing in natural gas or investing in nuclear power plants? Well, climate change is a risk that has to be managed and the climate has been changing for uh, millennia. I mean, there's a book called Shadowlands that describes villages in uh, uh, old uh, the England that have, are now underwater because of the movements of oceans. And it used to be that uh, parts of Europe were very warm even before industrialization. So we need to, we need to treat climate change as a risk that needs to be managed. We need to look at ways to deal with it, including adaptation. More people perhaps need air conditioning. Uh, but to say that we have to make radical changes in Europe and in the States that are not going to reduce total global carbon emissions and are only going to raise the costs of people living in those areas, that does not make any sense. I mean, if Africa, Latin America, Russia, China, India are not reducing their carbon emissions and are increasing them and have no intention of reducing their carbon emissions, everything that Western Europe and the United States does does not matter to total carbon emissions. Now, your answer there was very clinical and calm, I'd say, but in, it's a big a bit of a contrast to the Greta Thunbergs of the world who say that we have t 12 years to live. AOC and others have made these arguments that this is a really radical um, and serious problem that we must uh, sort out immediately, otherwise we're all going to die. Do you think that um, ge generally the, the sort of rhetoric around this is extreme and even cult-like? I think it really is. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, a hot day and is it two and a half degrees hotter on that particular day, I mean, you need to go inside, you'd have some more cold drinks, uh, you might want to, if it continues, it might be worth an investment in air conditioning. These are measures that can be done now. There are headlines all over the papers uh, in the States, you know, record temperatures in August, this is climate change. Hot weather does not necessarily mean climate change. And uh, we need to be serious about what we are proposing. I understand even Greta Thunberg is now in favor of nuclear power. So I think when they talk about those headlines, I suppose they're looking at the trend, aren't they, over periods of you know, decades or whatever. And they're saying that in general, um, the climate is warmer than it's, than it's ever been if you look at sort of historic records. Um, so that was the argument, I suppose, that they would, they would make. Yeah, but you have to look at how it's measured. For example, there's more urbanization, and these temperature gauges tend to be in urban areas. And I did an experiment driving back from my office, which is in the middle of Washington near the station. My car thermostat was reading 101 degrees. Then by the time I got home, which is just outside the boundary of Washington, it was 91 degrees. So where you put the temperature gauges makes a difference. And if these temperature gauges are placed in rural areas, you find a lower warming trend. So yes, the globe is warming, but not as much as alarmists say. And these models from the International Panel on Climate Change have not predicted correctly. There's something very wrong with these models. It's very difficult to predict climate changes because there's the role of so solar, there's the role of clouds, 
there's volcanoes that sometimes explode, there's particles in the air, uh, and the IPCC forecasts have not been accurate. Al Gore uh, had a, uh, a film called An Inconvenient Truth. According to Al Gore's film, Manhattan was supposed to be underwater by now. It isn't. We have to see what we're doing to normal people. Why are we making them pay more for electricity, more for their cars, more for their petrol, for nothing at all? Let's talk about net zero. Now, this is a policy in the UK that we have to have so-called net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and it's enshrined in law. So, um, again, the government is taking quite radical steps in this direction in terms of banning cars, petrol cars, and things like that. How do you assess net zero? Well, I would say that uh, net zero is something that is very difficult, practically impossible to achieve. Uh, as I said, wind and solar make about 5% of electricity production. And it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be very difficult to exceed that to any great extent. Even if we were to put windmills all over uh, Europe, we still need fossil fuels to make the wind turbines. They're vast towers of steel and concrete, and you can't make one wind turbine with another wind turbine. Plus, every wind farm needs a backup natural gas powered plant because the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so the gas powered, natural gas powered power plant, or coal or oil, has to kick in. Uh, intermittent energy, like wind and solar, is much more expensive to run uh, than continuous energy. And we're going to need fossil fuels as far as the eye can see, especially if we want people in the world in poor areas to rise to the levels that we have here in the West. I mean, we take for granted running water, uh, electricity, lights that don't go out. I mean, I'm not expecting the lights to go out here right now as I'm talking to you. But there are places in Africa, Latin America, where they don't have any of that. There's three to six billion people without electricity and running water. We need fossil fuels in order to get them to the standards of living that we have here in the West. And there are other countries such as South Africa that had very good energy production and now it's gone down with ESCOM. So uh, people are told every day whether they're going to have load shedding for two hours, four hours or six hours. That means small businesses uh, have to sell their refrigerated goods at discount prices if they're going to lose refrigeration for six hours. Because, you know, chicken not refrigerated for six hours uh, no, it's, you have to throw it away, so you might as well sell it very fast. So this is wreaking havoc on small businesses. So what happened to South Africa? How did they go from energy security to energy scarcity? Uh, a lot of people believe that uh, it's um, corruption, uh, that the government just cannot manage ESCOM, which is the power generator. One solution would be for the different power plants to be privatized, to be able to compete to offer energy and electricity and power uh, uh, to the main South African energy company, which is ESCOM. But it's certainly an example of an economy that's gone downhill. Another example is Venezuela, that now, even though it's very rich in oil and natural gas, cannot generate its own electricity, and its people now are, are far poorer than they were uh, 30 years ago. And if you look at the consequences of telling developing countries that they can't use fossil fuels, is your argument that many people, well, they'll just say, we're going to come to the West where they do have access to energy and electricity security. So we could see vast waves of immigration from poorer countries, from people who are, are sort of trying to find that energy security. We are seeing vast amounts of immigration now. We're seeing people from Latin America who are moving to the States, we're seeing people from Africa who want to come to Europe. They're in search of jobs for their families. They're in search of economic prosperity that we have here. And uh, the way to reduce these immigration pressures is to have more reliable energy there. But unfortunately, the World Bank won't lend for nuclear. It won't lend for coal. Uh, it's only just started lending for natural gas. And the same with other international organizations. They're being pressured not to lend for reliable electricity in these different countries. And that's really a crime to keep people poor. And it's rebounding on these countries as people naturally want to come here. 
you know, before the development of the internet, it was much harder to see what standards of living were in the West. But now practically everybody has a cell phone. By the way, the cell phones are not government provided. They're private sector provided, which is why everybody has them. And they can see what life is like here, and they want to have part of it. I want to quote from a recent report that you wrote for the Heritage Foundation on, um, on energy. There is not a single country with high energy use per capita and low capita per capita income. So the point you're making there is that it's impossible to have a, a growing economy, a rich society, and low energy demand or low energy use. But this is what the left are demanding, right? They want to de-industrialise, they want to um, decarbonize, and they still expect the standards of living to uh, maintain and even grow despite that. Yeah, they want to decarbonize. They think slower growth is a good idea. They think having smaller families is a good idea. Uh, and this is not the kind of economic progress that we've been used to or that many people want. Many people want their children to be better off than they are, not worse off. But with deindustrialization and a smaller population growth, that means lower gross domestic product, and people will, in essence, be worse off. Now, if we wanted to, uh, you know, if we wanted to be worse off, if we uh, wanted to uh, live in houses that were not as luxurious, if we didn't want to have electricity all the time and running water, then this would be a sensible goal. But most people don't want that. Let's talk about how Joe Biden and the Democrats have impacted energy policy in the United States. Obviously, the United States is um, very lucky for having energy abundance in terms of natural resources. Mm -hmm. And despite this, you're seeing significant issues in places like California, where they're having blackouts and things like that. So can you just explain how a country like America, with abundant natural energy resources, can have all of these significant issues in terms of energy scarcity? Well, it's actually very simple, Steve. People don't want to use the energy that we have. So California, Colorado, and about another 16 states uh, want to use more renewables, and they don't want to use uh, the coal, the oil, the natural gas that we have. And so that leads to blackouts, because the electricity grid cannot run purely on renewables. And in fact, California sometimes buys backup power from neighboring states. So it's not as though it relies completely on its own renewables. Uh, California also, paradoxically, wants to have all electric vehicles sold in 2035, even though now it doesn't have the electricity grid to run the share of electric vehicles it has right now. Uh, so these are policies that President Biden supports. On his first day in office, he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have brought oil from Canada to be refined and turned into uh, petrol in refiners in uh, Texas and Louisiana and places like that. He expanded national monuments in the West, which meant there couldn't be any oil and natural gas leases not, uh, there in those areas. And he ended a lot of offshore drilling, which meant, again, less oil and natural gas. Now, oil production has gone up to pre-pandemic levels, it's now about 13.2 million barrels a day. But that's because of development on private lands. That's in spite of what President Biden's doing, uh, not because of it. Is it right that he's also gone into America's energy reserves, uh, oil reserves, um, and that could also represent a sort of long-term threat to energy security? Yeah, America has a strategic petroleum reserve, and he drew on that because... Uh, petrol prices were too high. And, uh, Before the election last year. Yes, and it was very politically unpopular. So even though politicians say they want people to go green uh, and they want them to drive less, in practice, one of the most closely watched prices in the States is the price of petrol. Uh, and uh, people don't like it high. It's the price that people see half a dozen times a day when they drive to work and half a dozen times a day as they pass all the petrol stations on their way home. So because of that, he drew down the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, I have to say the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was put in place before America had large supplies of oil and natural gas, which came up through a technology revolution, uh, horizontal drilling, which means you can put a pipe horizontally and put different vertical pipes going down from it so that you're 
patch on the land is much smaller. Uh, hydraulic fracturing, which got natural gas out of the uh, earth. And uh, so the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is not as important as it used to be in the 70s. In terms of the electric vehicles revolution in America, and I suppose in Western Europe as well, where they're looking to ban petrol cars, I think by 2035 in the European Union, um, you mentioned that this is going to have a significant impact on energy demand. Do you think that governments are prepared for this significant increase in demand from, uh, from electric cars? And what could be the consequence of having all of these electric vehicles, for the, not just for energy demand, but also for the planet in general, for the, uh, for the environment? Well, uh, electric cars are, are not emissions-free. Uh, they have to be powered by electricity, which right now is mostly made uh, from uh, fossil fuels. So it's really a myth to say that these electric cars are going to solve the problems of um, uh, pollution and excess emissions. The kind of car that's actually uh, has the lowest emissions is a hybrid non-plug-in car. In other words, where there's, you, you don't have to plug it in, but there's a battery that makes the amount of petrol you use go a lot further. And uh, that does not have any tax credits, so politicians don't support it. They only support the kinds that plug in. But it's interesting that in the States, the Environmental Protection Agency has come out with two parallel rules, one which would result in 66% of new car sales being electric by 2032. The other would require, for power plants, 90% of the carbon emissions to be sequestered, that means buried. If and if that didn't happen by 2039, the power plant would have to go out of business. Now, neither of these rules, proposed rules, mentions the other. So the one that would make electricity more expensive and cause the power plants to go out of business would be bad for the electric cars. And then the electric cars would cause a lot more demand for electricity. And, you know, there seems to be a real disconnect as to how, how these two rules can move together. A lot of these policies seem to take impact in the next 10, 20, 30 years you know, we talked about net zero, that's 2050, these aims. Yeah. And as you say, there could be con significant negative consequences from actually instigating these policies, not only on en energy prices, making it incredibly expensive, but also, as we've mentioned, energy scarcity and potential blackouts and things like that. Do you think that as we get closer to these dates, these kind of five-year, ten-year plans, almost Stalinist in nature, um, that politicians will start to become more realistic and perhaps row back a little bit on some of these more excessive policies. At the moment, you could, you could, it's quite easy to make these promises. Oh, 2039, we'll, we'll put this in place, and it doesn't, you know, looks quite far away in the next elections in two years and whatever. Um, but do you think as we get closer to the, those kind of cut-off times, uh, perhaps we'll start to see a bit of rowing back on these things? I think politicians are picking these dates that are far out because they're not going to be there. They're going to be out of office, and it will be to the next set of politicians to deal with them. So uh, that's, that's one point. And I think if something's impossible to have happen, uh, then it just won't happen. But there's going to be a lot of uh, billions of dollars and pounds and euros wasted before that. Because, uh, at least in the States, there's incentives for electric battery factories. There's incentives for new car factories. The politicians are paying car manufacturers to put in place electric car factories and battery factories. And then they're paying customers to buy the electric cars with a, a tax credit of about um, £7,000. And people still can't, aren't buying them. And the headlines are that the projected electric car sales are far lower than demanded. But the problem is that these car manufacturers, they plan what cars to make in the year 1929 or, uh, uh, sorry, 2039, uh, 2029, they plan them about six years in advance, basically. So now they're looking at what to make in 2029 or 2030. And they're being told they have to make electric cars. And yet customers don't want to buy them. And there was a letter from the automobile dealers to President Biden saying, look, people just aren't buying these. You have to change your rules. Because these automobile dealers, uh, they have to put out the money for the cars before they come in. So they are left with the debt from buying the cars. And if they can't sell them, they're in big trouble. And people aren't buying them. They can't sell them enough. 
Now, you work for the Heritage Foundation. Uh, recently, you, you appeared in the Senate, and you were criticised by a Democrat left-wing senator um, for supposedly being funded by dark money, he described it as, and the, the oil companies and, and things like that. Um, how do you respond? I mean, I know you responded excellently on that uh, clip, but how do you respond to these allegations that Heritage Foundation is just saying all these things because they're funded by the fossil fuel industry and by so-called dark money? Well, the Heritage Foundation has hundreds of thousands of members, and foundation and corporate support is about 6% of the total budget. And, of, and there's no corporation that has more than 1% of the heritage budget. So there, it, there just isn't anything to it. And I've been writing the same things about energy uh, all my career. About 10 years ago, uh, my book, Regulating to Disaster, uh, about how green jobs were hurting America's economy, was published. And Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, so where I work has no influence on what I say. These are just very obvious things, Steve. Very obvious. And, and you've written about energy policy for a while. I, yeah. I've, I've interviewed on this podcast Michael Schellenberger. I'm sure you know about yes, him. Yes, I and, do, of course. And he was talking about how there's this kind of energy cult. He sees the kind of climatism as a religion. So you're a bit of a heretic, as it were, in his kind of metaphor. How, what kind of um, backlash have you had? Have you experienced significant sort of pushback? I know I, I just mentioned one, one example of how they might attack you, saying you're funded by the fossil fuel industry. Do you feel like a sort of heretic amongst like a 99% people saying the opposite thing to you? Uh, I suppose a lot of people do say the opposite, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's not that I mind at all. Uh, there was someone, a vice president from an oil company, came to talk to Heritage from a British oil company, actually, and was talking about their transition to net zero. And I said, do you really believe we're transitioning to net zero? And he said, no, but if I said so outside these four walls, people would call for divestment of our stock. So it's as though no one wants to say the emperor has no clothes. No one wants to say that what these politicians are planning uh, is impossible. No one's willing to say that we have a major problem now of three to six billion people living in poverty, and that it's more important to deal with those three to six billion people living in poverty than the climate risk uh, of, um, that's just uh, a probability, and it's a risk that has to be managed. We have an actual problem of people who don't have enough money, uh, people who have a hard time paying bills, and those are the people that we need to be dealing with now. Those are the people who elected politicians. And one reason that governments are so unpopular, and we see the conservatives here, we see the Democrats in America, is because people think that government is not working for them, and that the prices they're paying are higher and higher, and that they're not getting uh, better lives as they want. It's ironic, isn't it? Because in the UK, it's been the Conservative Party who have been pushing for net zero and some of the more extreme energy policies. And as you say, in America, that's the Democrats. Um, the Republicans, on the other hand, perhaps have a, have a different perspective. Um, maybe you can talk a bit about Republican plans for energy. I know you worked in the Trump 
White House. I don't think that was specifically about energy. Uh, or correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, what, what's the kind of contrast between the Democrats and the Republicans on this issue? So under President Trump, I worked in the Treasury and the Transport Department, and the Transport Department did do quite a lot with energy because it runs the different cars. Uh, there's a big, big difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans would have more oil and natural gas development. Uh, they would allow oil and gas development in places that President Biden has rolled back. They would encourage imports from Canada of uh, um, oil that can be refined in the United States, uh, they would remove the rules that would require electric cars, shares of electric cars sold by 2030, 2032, 2035. They'd allow people to choose what they wanted to buy, an electric car or a petrol-powered car, a stove that runs on gas, a stove that runs on electricity, a washing-up machine that uses a lot of water, a washing-up machine that uses a little water. Basically, Republicans believe that there should not be energy subsidies for any form of energy and that people should choose what's the most efficient. And that might change over time. And it's certainly different by country. So, for example, Sweden has a lot of hydropower and manages to generate a lot of its electricity through hydropower. And we don't have that uh, here in the UK. Do you feel that generally the Republicans are less beholden to this kind of energy climate religion, as I said, um, compared to the UK Conservatives. Well, yeah, why do you think that is? What, do you think it's just a completely different political context in America and in Britain? Yes, well, people say that uh, there were certain uh, pressures on Boris Johnson that encouraged him to take up a green agenda that actually haven't worked out as well as he hoped. Uh, but Republicans uh, don't have those pressures. Uh, there are a lot of Republican states that produce oil and natural gas, plus there's the advantages that if we have more pipeline development, more natural gas development, then this natural gas can take the place of some of the Russian gas that was cut off, and it can be exported. Now we have liquid natural gas terminals that can export this natural gas uh, to Europe and elsewhere as it's needed. Even the Japanese are interested in buying American natural gas. You work in Washington, D.C. Uh, obviously, uh, as I mentioned, you worked in the Trump White House and in various other Republicans. Actually, actually, I worked in the Trump Transportation Department Sorry. and Treasury Department. The Trump, the Trump administration, I, I sort of said. Um, I wasn't clever enough to be in the Trump White House. <laughs> but, but you've worked in previous uh, Republican House. administrations and, and in the White House before. Yes. Um, so, so you've sort of been around the block, as it were, in terms of um, energy policy and other things. How cynical are you when it comes to the reasons why the Democrats are pushing these energy policies. Do you think that they are real believers in their kind of climate, you know, doom uh, predictions? Or do you think that there's something else at play here? Well, uh, there are a very large number of Democrats, and I'm sure some of them uh, believe the doom predictions. Others might have investments in green energy or get contributions from companies that deal with green energy and that uh, might sway their particular perspective. Certainly the green industry is very large. Uh, Al Gore has investments in green energy and he was uh, uh, very definitive uh, that green energy needed to be expanded and he didn't mention his investments at the time. So it's really a fight between two very major industries. But as I said, the green renewable energy uh, industry has had massive amounts of subsidies. It still can't stand on its own. It still uh, produces only about 5% of the energy and electricity required. And America now is an oil and natural gas net, net exporter and has a duty not just to Americans to produce as much as possible, but also people all over the world who need this form of energy. Let's talk about the geopolitical consequences of these Democrat energy policies. So how does this impact the relationship between America, the West and China? Is China winning out of these policies? China's definitely winning because it produces 80% of the world's electric batteries and a lot of the components that go into the solar panels, the wind turbines uh, and the electric cars and about seven of the largest solar and wind companies uh, operate in China, are Chinese. So with the United States and Western Europe moving away from oil and natural gas and towards these renewables, that's a big benefit towards China. 
And China, by the way, is making these wind turbines and batteries with coal-fired power, building about two coal-fired power plants a week. Uh, and so this is not reducing the world's carbon. When John Kerry was visiting in the spring, President Xi said that China was not going to peak its emissions in 2030 as it had previously said it would under the Paris Agreement. Instead, it was going to peak these emissions at a time of its own choosing. And about a year ago, in remarks to the National Assembly, President Xi said that uh, renewables would take over in China when they could substitute for fossil fuels. Well, that's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So basically, we're neglecting the fact that parts of the world that are not friendly to us are benefiting from these green policies. Do you feel it's energy is part of the kind of cold, new Cold War between um, the West and, and China? And China are basically taking advantage of these um, pledges that we're making. And then they're not making those, as you said, they're not making those same pledges. So it's a very asymmetric relationship. Yes, it's very, it's very definitely part of this new Cold War, and there's other parts of it too. There's the lack of reciprocity. So a Chinese company can come and buy all of an American company, but an American company cannot buy all of a Chinese company. Uh, Chinese social media uh, can be uh, in Europe, can be in the States, but American and European social media, such as Facebook and different kinds of things, cannot be uh, shown in China, and Chinese don't have access to it. Uh, Chinese companies can list on the Western stock exchanges, but American and European countries cannot list on the Chinese stock exchanges. So we need to have more of a level playing field. That's also part of the geopolitical game. What was it like working in the Trump administration? Oh, uh, I, very much, I very much enjoyed it. I was working at the Transportation Department for Secretary Elaine Chao. Uh, she is a four, she's a terrific manager. She's one of the most qualified cabinet secretaries there are because she had eight years at the Labor Department as Secretary of Labor there, where I worked for her as Chief Economist. She'd also been Deputy Secretary of the Transportation Department, so she knew how to run an agency. And we put out uh, uh, a lot of um, grants for research, for basic research, and uh, there was a lot that we did to promote the development of, uh, of uh, infrastructure, roads and bridges, to encourage companies to innovate, uh, to encourage private space exploration. And now there are many flights that go up in space uh, to space stations that are run by private entities. So she did a wonderful job of looking after the country's transportation. Now, this year is obviously an election year. We began the interview by talking about why the election is so vital in terms of energy policy. In 2022, uh, the Republicans didn't do so well in the midterm elections, um, as many people predicted, despite all of the energy problems that Biden was having. So fuel prices were was going up and everything. And, and, and despite this, Republicans still didn't perform too well. Why do you think that was? And do you think that, that we could see sort of replication this year in terms of, well, all, there are all these issues, but people don't care about the energy stuff. They might care more about abortion or other things. Right. Well, all politics is local, and uh, some other issues, such as the abortion issue, uh, took front and center place over these energy and economic issues. We'll have to see what happens this year. Uh, at least at the fourth quarter of 2023, there was a very strong stock market growth that makes people more confident. We'll have to see if the Federal Reserve cuts rates. Uh, historically, if the election year has had a stronger year for economic growth than the year before, then the incumbent wins. Otherwise, the incumbent loses. So there's going to be a lot of pressures to have a strong economy, including the Federal Reserve cutting rates uh, this next year, uh, and to make the economy strong. But Prices have gone up. People don't like the higher prices. Uh, people don't feel as though the government is working for them. And there are a lot of reasons that Biden's poll numbers are lower than Trump's right now. But no one can tell because people don't really make up their minds how to vote till around the September before the election. 
Now, as I mentioned, you work for the Heritage Foundation, big conservative think tank in America, and they're working on something called Project 2025. I believe that you're involved in this project. Can you just explain a little bit about what that is and how it might impact a, a, a potential sort of second Trump administration if, that, uh, if they get elected? Well, Project 2025 was to put in place ways that uh, a new Republican administration would be ready. Uh, so Heritage has teamed up with 75 other think tanks, 75 other conservative think tanks, to put out a set of proposals that are generally agreed on by Republicans in the states. And there's a book called Mandate for Leadership with a chapter for each cabinet agency. I wrote the transportation chapter. And it lays out Republican principles for each of these different cabinet agencies. So it's clear to people that they have a choice and what the choice is. That's the first pillar. Then the second pillar is writing, working on proposed rules uh, for the next administration. Uh, uh, pillar number three is uh, getting in place lists of people who'd be willing to serve in a next Trump administration or the administration of whatever candidate it is. Uh, Trump is ahead of the, in the polls right now, but no one knows who the candidate is going to be. And this effort is aimed at any Republican candidate or any Democrat candidate if they want to take up these ideas. And then the fourth pillar is actually training these individuals to show them what it's like to come to a government job and what they have to do, what they have to be prepared for, so that they have some idea of what to expect and they're educated and ready to take whatever job they might have. It's an interesting uh, difference in the American and British systems where in America you have m many more political appointees when the president comes in every four years, about 40,000 people get appointed by the president himself uh, or herself. And, um, and these have to go through various confirmation hearings. And it's, it's a, it's a, but whereas in the UK we have a civil service who's meant to be impartial and you know, there's very few political appointees. Do you feel that in 2016, the Trump administration or the Trump team was ready for government? I mean, it was quite a surprise election victory for many people. Uh, it was a surprise, yes, yes. And uh, looking back on it, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Probably President Trump could have done a better job by filling certain positions sooner and uh, thought, um, but uh, uh, there were a lot of achievements, such as increased energy production and lower taxes, which really meant that the economy did very well under President Trump. And people liked that. And before the pandemic, there'd been the lowest unemployment rates all over, including for lower educated groups of people and groups of people that had traditionally had higher unemployment rates, such as Hispanics and blacks. All those reached record lows. So the economy was doing very well. And President Trump was very foresightful in that he purchased uh, millions of dollars of three types of vaccines before they were approved. So that once the vaccines were approved, they were ready to be rolled out. Uh, so even during the pandemic, uh, there was a lot of good governance. So you feel that there were some successes. Do you think that this time around, let's say Trump does win or whoever the Republican candidate is uh, wins, do you feel that they would be far more prepared, or better prepared rather, to deal with the so-called deep state? And do you think that the deep state um, is a serious issue for Republicans? That is, career civil servants who are basically trying to disrupt what elected politicians are trying to enact? Well, the system of checks and balances means it's very difficult in Washington to get anything done. Uh, there's the judicial system, there's Congress, uh, and then there's the executive branch and its agencies. So working through that whole process is very difficult, and it was put in place to make sure that it was difficult to pass a law and that it's difficult for government to take advantage of people. So now governments uh, tend to operate through regulations and rules. If Congress won't pass a law, they try to do it by regulations or by executive orders, and that means the president or his uh, people in his different ministries can just form a rule, and that goes through, such as with the electric cars. Uh, so it's very difficult to navigate, and I think that for a second term, uh, President Trump uh, would uh, be well prepared. There's also uh, the governor. Uh, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, uh, who is uh, running. There's the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who's running. 
and uh, governor experience, experience managing a state, is also very translatable into running a government, a federal government. When you were working in the Trump administration, did you feel, or did you experience um, uh, civil servants just sort of trying to disrupt or uh, delay things, um, or, or, or who sort of anti-Trump people who were working against the administration. I mean, this was a lot of accusations against people, I don't know, in the FBI or whatever, um, who were causing all sorts of issues for Trump. Do you, did you see that yourself? Well, the job of the civil service is to support whatever leaders are there at the time. And in the transportation department, they were, they were consummate professionals, and they supported what we wanted to do which was safety, innovation, and infrastructure development. And they were very, very supportive. And other agencies, it might have been different, but uh, in the transportation department, uh, there were no problems. Can we talk a bit about the political environment in the US right now? Because from an outsider's perspective, it seems quite chaotic. Uh, Trump obviously is facing all of these criminal charges from various different prosecutors across the country. How does it feel like to be in D.C. at the moment? Is it quite an unprecedented situation? Is it quite sort of hot and, and feverish in terms of the political atmosphere? Um, you know, as I said, you've been in all sorts of Republican administrations since Ronald Reagan, so you've, you've seen various elec election campaigns and so on. So w what's your sort of impression of the political atmosphere at the moment in D.C.? Well, it's very divided, and election years are always very divided. It's always one party against the other party, of course, both parties want to win the election, as well as control of the different houses of Congress, the Senate and the House of Representatives. So it's always exciting to come to work, to think about, well, what can I write about today? What tweets can I send out? That kind of thing. It's a very exciting atmosphere. It's very invigorating. I'm always happy to get up and go into the office. But you're not um, worried about, let's say, the future of the republic. And um, there are lots of you know, Republicans and Trump, Trump supporters who say, well, um, he's facing unprecedented political sabotage through these prosecutions, and um, this is not democratic. And if this was happening in any other country, then we would point it out and say this is sort of like a dictatorship, it's, as I said, not, 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 not democratic. So um, again, do you, do, you, do you sort of um, tap into that hyperbole? Is it hyperbole? Um, I suppose that's my question. Yeah, so the Heritage Foundation works on Republican politics for any policies, for any, any candidate. Uh, and all our policies are available to everybody. And in terms of the prosecutions for President Trump, I mean, some of them are clearly politically motivated, and these are making his approval ratings go up rather than down. So it seems to be rebounding against the uh, unless uh, cynically there are people prosecuting him because they hope he's going to be the candidate and they want him to lose. But I'm an economist. This is way, way above, uh, you know, the, these political machinations are way above what I have to deal with. And what I deal with is trying to propose policies that are more free market oriented that will help people be better off. Now, you mentioned the stock market is doing very well, and that's true. Um, do you think that's down to President Biden or is it something else? Well, the increase in the stock market was due to the fact that the Federal Reserve uh, appeared to say that they were going to cut interest rates next year. At least that's what Chairman Powell said. And when interest rates are lower, the stock market goes up. In fact, and there was a correction earlier this week in the stock market, uh, when the minutes of the Federal Open Market Committee came out, and it turns out that some of the members still have concerns about inflation. And one thing that we need, really need to be concerned about is uh, American national debt, uh, which is about $33 trillion. And the annual deficit is about $2 trillion. And it's very hard to sustain these, including the, the interest on the debt and how is it going to affect uh, people's lives and interest rates. Uh, so uh, it's not clear if the stock market rebound is going to continue. But it was caused by the perception that the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates. I don't know if the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates. What's your view on the overall health of the American economy? Well, I think that it's, it's fundamentally healthy, but it could be even healthier with lower spending and also fewer tax credits for projects that are clearly politically motivated. The major problem is that spending is completely out of control. It used to be 
that Congress had different bills that would make it not the ba ba budget balance, but it would restrict spending. So it had the Graham-Rodman-Hollings Act. It had other kinds of laws. But now none of these are in place. And so there's no holds barred on any kind of deficit spending. And it started during the pandemic when quite naturally it was important to buy vaccines and pay unemployment benefits and expand the number of people who got food stamps uh, to put student loan payments on hold. But now the pandemic is over. There's no more national emergency. And it's very hard to roll back this government spending once it started. So that's the major problem, I would say, facing the American economy. Too much government spending and too many regulations trying to force people to buy things that they don't want. And do you think part of that spending issue is on Ukraine and other so-called foreign wars? This has been a huge issue for many Republicans that they feel the Biden administration has spent far too much money on these projects. I would say uh, that, uh, first of all, the, uh, the aid to Ukraine needs to be carefully thought out, not rather than a drip here and a drab there. Someone needs to think about what is it going to take to win and are we going to put in the money to win? And it needs to be a well-organized decision uh, among different countries. But most of, the, most, most of the funding that's going on is for things like uh, Medicaid, which is a health program for poor people, Medicare, a health program for older people. So it's these automatic payments that go on no matter what. And that's really driving up the deficit. So the amount of what they call discretionary spending that can be spent by Congress that's not an automatic pilot, that's relatively small compared with the budget as a whole. Thank you very much, Diana, for joining us. I appreciate your time. It's wonderful to be on, Steve. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.